Hello, and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan. I am your host, R.T. Fleming, and it is my mission to help you find your next digital comic book pick from the golden age to now. I have been reading comic books for over 40 years, and have never lost my passion for comic books. Something I try to pass on to old and new readers. It's Monday, August 28th, 2023, and this is episode 125 of the podcast. And like any true comic fan, I like special numbers. 25th issue, 100th issue, 500th issue. Well, you get the point. Last year, for the 75th show and first anniversary of the podcast, I Gary Carlson and I, grandfather of Image Comics. And if you don't know who Gary is and what Big Bang Comics are all about, you need to do a little side research. Today's guest, lining up with the 125th show, is either a fluke or maybe plain luck or, I don't know, maybe a combination. It's Daryl Banks, iconic comic book artist who was someone I admired when I started noticing creators behind the fantastic comic books I was reading. I could go on and on about his achievements. For example, he co-created Kyle Radner along with Ron Mars. Banks also drew most of that run of Green Lantern from issues 50 through 142. What an achievement. Now, I've had a few big names on the podcast, like Phil Hester, Ron Mars, Gary Carlson, and I don't go around hitching my pants up and bragging about the guests I snagged. No. It's to get fans to sample the podcast and stick around for future shows. That, in turn, helps the indie creators and Kickstarter campaigns I try to focus on the show when I can. Like this week, Daryl Banks and Tony Cottrell are dropping today. Two names you need to know and be aware of. From there, I've lined up some black indie creators that I'm putting together, some fantastic comics, and throughout the week I'm spotlighting them in different shows. I wanted to do something like this for a long time. It's kind of like a creator's role spotlighting those black creators putting out those fantastic books. Please take a look at their shows. Check a look at the guest appearances. It was fantastic fun putting the shows together. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for checking it out. Please continue to sample the show. Look at the show notes, follow the podcast and social media. Subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. I want the podcast to continue to grow so I can support these indie creators, these Kickstarter campaigns, and as I've said many times, introduce fans to a different way of discovering and reading fantastic comic books. Now into today's show. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have welcoming back Daryl Banks. He was on last October with Michael Katz, Rod Mars, and Keith Champagne, and they were my first big people on the podcast. And it was very scary and very intimidating on my side because I also had four people on there that I'd never had before, and they're all icons. Uh, so, Daryl, thanks for joining me again. And can just tell people a little bit about yourself and what you're doing right now in your life with comic books and all that stuff. Sure, sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Ronald. I really appreciate that. Uh, once again, my name is Daryl Banks. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, born and raised. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, home of the Buckeyes. Uh, I'm a professional illustrator of 34 years. Uh, I work on various things, everything from comics to even toy design. That I did not know about. So now I just completely off script. So you said you did some toy design. What have you done? Would you know anything about that? How did you get into that type of thing? That just sounds really cool. Let's see. Um, I haven't done a lot of toys lately, but I have, I've done some stuff for Mattel, 
and Hasbro, mainly Hasbro. Uh, Mattel, at the time, they had a, a direct license with, uh, with DC Comics. So, you know, that was, I mean, I think they had an office in the same building. So, you know, that was an easy fit. But the bulk of my toy stuff was with Hasbro. Uh, that came from uh, a contact I had made uh, through Hawthorne Village, I'd mentioned, which was a, a division of the Bradford Exchange. So one of my editors uh, from Bradford went to Hasbro. And I still remember it. He was, he was giving me a lot of work. He goes, I got good news and bad news for you. And I, I'm like, the bad news is that I won't be able to give you any more, any more Hawthorne work. I'm like, oh, the good news is I'm going to Hasbro and I'm going to spread your name around, et cetera. So uh, for a while, you know, I was doing quite a, a few things for Hasbro. Worked on uh, almost the same thing, same type of things I did for Hawthorne as far as conceptual things like uh, uh, Marvel Legends uh, concepts. Of, of the Hasbro uh, Marvel superhero line, uh, GI Joe, um, a little Transformers. Um, that was what I think they called it, blue skying. Like imagine this or imagine that, um, but with uh, I would say things that I actually worked on that became products was when the first Captain America movie came out. They did these like small three and three quarter uh, inch Captain America concept figures, like you had. Captain America as a SWAT officer, uh, Captain America as a like a paratrooper, you know, with it came with a pair a parachute, you know, uh, those actually, you know, it's funny I saw those in stores like oh they they made them all the way to the to full production because a lot of things I do are just an idea they want to see it and think about oh well we'll consider this or that you know, um, which is you know right in my wheelhouse I love you know product discovery and, and conceptual things. Did you get lucky in finding that? And and also, was it something that you were looking to do or you just kind of like just jumped in because you need to be creatively challenged? As toys? Um, that's, um, if, if you turn the camera and you'll see just some of the toys I have around me, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that was that was supposed to happen. I'm. Uh, you could say I'm an action figure collector, just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> Gotcha. Uh, yeah, that that was that was something I, I wanted to do. You know. Okay, so you do the Bradford Exchange, and we talked about that briefly the last time you were on with Michael and Ron and Keith. So, how did you get involved with that, and how long have you been doing it, and why are you doing that? Well, one thing about comics is that I mean, just like anything else in the art field, there are ups and downs, and I was doing comics, you know. Uh, on a regular basis until I wasn't. I didn't know why, and it was, uh, long story short, uh, I, I had a friend that worked uh, that worked with the uh, with, with Bradford and said that I would be a great fit for them. So I thought, you know, since I was at the time basically out of work, I'm like, uh, I don't care what it is. <laughs> so fortunately, um, the projects that they had me do were, were fantastic. I think one of the first things I did were concepts for uh, Batman related things and then uh, shortly after that for uh, the Alien franchise uh, you know the Xenomorph creature and all that so um, yeah I've been I've been doing work for them for about 14 years now and it's kind of like an as needed it's not like I have a position where I'm doing something every day or every week it's more like when they need something I mean I've got something to work on this weekend but um, it's I, I never know what they're what they're going to need me to do and uh, but I always enjoy working with them. I, I have nothing negative to say about working with the Bradford Exchange. Uh, I, I love it. And uh, they always give me plenty of time. And well, 
great compensation, et cetera, and very creative. Speaking of being creative, I was doing the background research, and this goes back a long time. Your first book that you did was Innovation Publishing back in 1989. It was a cyberpunk graphic novel, which is really hard to find, actually. And you painted that versus drawing it. Why did you, like, paint it back then? And do you still do try to do that type of work now? I was just kind of curious because painting was kind of different back then. That was, you know, it, a, a classic case of, this is a company. This is what they what they needed, you know. And I'm I'm looking to get my first published work, you know. Now in my mind, I'm going to draw the Avengers for Marvel, but it's kind of like that ain't going to happen anytime soon. So what's out there? So this company out of West Virginia, you know, me and some friends who are also artists, we we drove down there and, and spoke with the, the you know the, the company owner about uh, you know interested in our work, and all my friends got work except me. So I I kind of tried again and then I, I got cyberpunk and a few other things but yeah it was just what they wanted it's not something I, I said hey you know I really want to try this experimental technique like no they wanted to paint it but initially it was supposed to be all watercolor but uh one I was a you know brand new at this this, this sort of thing and I did I, I found out I don't have that much control over watercolor so it ended up being mixed it had some color pencil in there and maybe even a little marker here and there but mainly uh you know, watercolor and, and uh, color pencil, you know, in, intermixed without, within it. And uh, I just remember when the book finally came out, I think I was at a show in uh, Chicago, not the, not C2E2, that didn't even exist then. It was just called the Chicago Con. It was in Rosemont, Illinois. I remember walking up and down the hallways with the book like I had a newborn. It's like all these years of wanting to get published, you know, of anything, here it is. This is the first one. Like this is this is the beginning. You know, I just, you know, it was it was so euphoric. I mean, even though it was something nobody never had ever heard of, I guess, but for me it was a big deal. It was a, a massive step forward. So did you always like as a kid, even like I want to draw comic books as a kid, was that always like a possible goal for you? And what was it like for you breaking into the industry finally? I, I love comics, you know, all my life, but I never really decided I wanted to do it probably until I was a senior in high school because I had no idea how do you go about getting a job in comics. I certainly didn't know anyone that was doing it. And I, I thought, well, don't you have to live in New York City or something to do that? I, I had no idea. So um, it, it, it was one of those things where I knew I wanted to get into art and, and that's why my background is, you know, the, the college I went to, I studied, you know, commercial illustration and, and, and advertising, that sort of thing. It didn't teach me anything about comics that, that I learned on my own after I graduated. But, and I mean, and that was, and that was fine because working for things like Bradford, that, you know, my background from schooling that really helped me in that area. But with comics, that's such a different animal, but it, I've just decided you know, I, I really like illustration, but I love comics. And I thought, if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, it's got to be something I love. You know, my, my dad, uh, when he was still living, he used to, he was a steel worker. And, you know, he did it until he retired and he hated it. And I thought, I I can't live like that. I've got to love what I do. So I decided, well, what do you love to do? I said, well, what do I spend all my free time doing? Drawing comics. So that's what I decided I'll head in that direction, you know, like a like a pilgrim or something. Like I'll head in that direction and I'll figure out how this works one way or the other, you know, step by step. So, how old were you when you first got your big break with uh, innovation publishing? About. Um, I could have done the math. I was just thinking. I was just curious. Uh, um, let's see. Well, I'm 58 now, 
So oh, in, in 1989, I would have been old. Hold on. You're, um, what year were you born? 1964. Right, hold on here. See, that's what, that, folks, that's what you do when you don't uh, do your homework ahead of time here. So let's see here. Oh, I should know that off the top of my head. You're, like, I think you're, I think you're 25. Okay. All right. That was kind of yeah. old. That's kind of old for you. You know, getting into the comic books, you know, at 25. Because Phil Hester was talking, because we were talking before, and Phil Hester was like, I was 19. I was just doing anything they threw my way. I just wanted to get published at the time. And I didn't realize that you're closer to 25 when you started. That's, oh, wow. That's so, did you, how long were you trying to break into the industry? Were you just throwing things out there or at the time? Uh, back then, if if it was even a medium sized comic convention, Marvel or DC would would show up looking at portfolios. I mean, there was no internet back then, but you could. It's always better to to speak with clients, companies in person. I mean, email is fine, but it's always better to have a face to face and and actually speaking with someone. And so back then, you know, I could show my work, you know, to companies large and small in person. Um, but now, I, honestly, I don't. I don't have any idea how you would break in now. It seems like it would be so much harder now. Even though, you know, we have the internet, we have Zoom and things of that nature. But as far as being able to just randomly speak with a company, I, I feel like that's that's got to be harder. Obviously, it's not impossible. The industry is still, you know, still around, still going strong with new talent. But you know, back then it was just showing my portfolio, getting shot down, showing showing my por portfolio, getting shot down. But I, until I met. I remember speaking with people like uh, it was a DC representative by the name of I believe his name was Michael Gold, Mike Gold. Yep, I remember and, him. Uh, he had he was very. I just remember the Marvel booth. They they were like suit and tie looking guys. Marvel just like it looked like everybody else. They could be fans sitting behind the table. No offense, but it's kind of like it seemed they were so laid back. But with DC, I thought, wow, they look like a like a company or something like that. But now keep in mind, Marvel was the goal. DC was not. And I'm thinking, you know, I want to, you know, my goal is I want to draw Marvel characters. I want to draw the Avengers, et cetera. But DC was always good with giving me very specific things for me to work on. And they would give me a business card. And I kept thinking, you know, something says I'm going to end up with DC instead of Marvel. Now, and I have done a couple things for Marvel, but, you know, the bulk of my big two work was with DC. We are... We're taping this early, and we're doing this during the end of February. And one of the things you wanted to talk about were some of the legendary Black creators that influenced you in your career, which was Dennis Cohen, Larry Stroman, and uh, Brian Stelfreeze. And expound, you know, talk more about those guys and why they were so important in you becoming the person you are today as Daryl Banks, the illustrator. Well, it was uh, each one of them had given me some very specific advice and also knowing that there are people in the industry that looked like me you know that was something that was not as common as it is today not that it's really common even now but even less common back then and then add to the fact that they were all amazing talents and and willing to to spend a moment with me to give me some very crucial advice i would say out of that list i spoke with dennis cowan the most because I felt like I stalked him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whenever I saw him at a convention, I'm thinking, you know, it was like one, I was a fan of his work. And also 
he would tell me some some pertinent things. I remember he would always get on me about so your figures are just too stiff. You gotta loosen up, you know, get some action in there. You know, I was so obsessed with drawing them correctly, but they weren't interesting. And so, you know, getting me to think more about camera placement and and you know, body movement, things like that. Uh, with Brian Steltries, um, it was a, it's a host of things. I remember Brian could draw almost anything and everything out of his head that it looks like it was photo reference, but it, it was his mind just works that way. And I, the one thing I wanted to know was, you know, let's say for example, I could draw Superman out of my head, but not Clark Kent in the suit. I thought, how do you draw clothing out of your head? And he said, well, if you notice, depending on what the body is doing underneath the material they'll fit in some of the very predictable patterns. And once you do it enough and you'll notice what these patterns are, you'll be able to draw them out of your head. And he was correct. And uh, another great bit of advice I got from Brian Stelfridge was I was big on, oh man, especially since this is earlier on in my career, I wanted to have a style. I, I was all about, you know, style, you know, the popular style. How do I get a style? And Brian goes, really, everyone already has a style. And I wanted to go like, I don't agree with that. He said, is a picture picture of this have you ever taken a life drawing class I said, of course did that a lot in school um you'll notice everyone is working from the same model in the life drawing class but everyone's drawing looks a little different why is that i'm like uh i, I don't know teacher what how, why is that because everyone sees the world a little bit different it's at that style now what you do with to cultivate that then that's you know part of your journey but you really already have a style you know i thought Thank you, sir. Thank you. Is it, he, he's that guy. I mean, I mean if, if you spend any time with Brian Stelfried, you're going to learn something. It, it's just, it's scary. I mean, especially artistically. Um, I was at a show with him in North Carolina, just like a couple, uh, maybe three years ago, and I was watching him draw. And he was explaining things. You know, I'm listening to him talk to other people, and he was explaining things I already knew, but how he phrased it, I thought, Oh, wow. After all these years, I'm still learning from Brian Stelfreeze, you know. Uh, with Larry Stroman, I wanted to interject quickly. He was big on, he was one of the last things I really need to work on before I was really getting the attention of a DC or whatever. He said, my line weights were, were not interesting. He said, think of line weights, especially when you're doing something like superheroes. Think of calligraphy, you know, line weight changes that, that are interesting and that they're a part of the process just as good drawing is. And I remember... Uh, that's probably the biggest thing I remember getting from from, from Larry Stroman. Uh, that also very helpful, very helpful. So what's a you know what's a typical day for Daryl Banks, the creator? I mean, because people think a lot of times that comic book artists and writers have these big rock star type things, and they forget that nah, they're normal people with normal life things. And so, what's your like creative day like for you? What do you do? How do you do it? Artistically. Yeah, like, what do you do, like, what, how do you do your student? I mean, do you work every day on something or do you do it part time? Do you still oh, try? <laughs> it's every day? Yeah, well, about six days a week, you know. Um, my, I, I, have, I make a schedule for myself of, of what needs to be drawn because I discovered I'll never know when I'm done unless I know what, I, what needs to get done. I think about what, what work is actually due or if I have an open deadline what's a realistic amount of work that needs to get done and then still have a life. You know, um, I like to, when I can, I like to just sketch just for myself, but that's, that's kind of a rarity. Usually if I'm sketching, it's sketches that relate to the project I'm working on. 
uh, like for example, with with Riot Earp, you know, I'll begin with with uh, I'm reading over the script, but but just one page at a time, and then I'll do some rough layouts of that page, and then uh, go more into into detail with each step. Since with comics, I do uh, it's all digital. Same with with my work with Hawthorne Village. Now, with uh, when someone commissions me, that's still done with traditional pencils and ink. But I would say that uh, I would, I, you know, I, I, I like to divide my day up to make sure I take breaks. Now, that sounds pretty obvious, but there was a time I'm thinking, I have a ton of work. I just got to, you know, just keep going until I stop. And I discovered I would burn out and not be able to put many days of the week because I had worn myself out. But it's more like plan your work and plan a break, you know. Um, you know, same with, you know, doing things with my family. It's like, that's j just as important, if not more important than planning the work. So how has your art changed over the years? Is it pretty I, much stayed, evolved? How do you feel about, you know, your artwork? Are you happy with what you've done? I am, but there, I'm, I'm probably my, my own worst critic. Um, one thing that I mean, I always have goals each year of what I want to get better at, but I'm not satisfied with it. And, I, and I, I like the fact that I'm not satisfied with it because I think the moment I feel satisfied with it, it'll be boring to me. And that's I, I that's uh, I'd never want that to happen. Um, I feel my, my my work has changed because early in my career, like I mentioned earlier, about I got to get a style, I'm getting input from artists. How do I get a style now? It's more like trusting my instincts and i figure if if i've been hired for it the, the client must already like how i draw so it's it's one of those things i, I use as an expression to this day i'm like the wheel is already being invented i don't need to reinvent <laughs> it's more like how can i take what's in front of me and make it you know do it to the best of my ability on time and then and then take it from there now there are things that with my work i would like to improve is um i notice i like animation you know, whether it's Disney or Japanese animation, you name it, I, I've noticed they're very, there's a, such a, so many facial expression uh, subtleties. I really feel like my work could stand it to touch more onto that. Um, maybe getting more uh, daring with camera placement. You ever think about action films where the camera is just, you know, it's most uh, non traditional ways to, to convey action and, and intensity, things of that nature. Just so that so that if it's interesting to me, chances are it'll be interesting to anyone who's reading the book. So we have to go back to the elephant in the closet because you were co-creator of Kyle Bradner and the whole Emerald Twilight with Al Jordan going crazy and killing people and that whole thing with Ron Mars. Did you guys have any idea what kind of firestorm that would set off? Or were you just like, I'm just trying to tell a great story and just be done with it? Did you guys have any clue what you were doing? I mean that nicely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, I mean, yes and no. Because keep in mind, this was the 90s. You know, gimmicks and change and dramatic things were in the air. It was the way of the industry. I mean, with Kyle Rayner, we never said, all right, this is we, we're going to do this to, to shock and, and awe people. It's more like Ron and I said, we want to tell stories that we ourselves would like. And I feel like that's why he's still around because most of the things that were happening at the time, like Superman was dead, Batman had a broken back, and so Dick Grayson was Batman. Those things have kind of over over time reverted back to you know back to form. But Kyle Rayner, in, I'm, I'm hoping, is is still around somewhere. We we never approached it like the '90s gimmick kind of was. Um, 
it, it was funny. He's even had different costumes over the years, but over time, I noticed his suit looks, you know, very close to the original design I came up with. So we didn't know it was going to be, you know, a, a shocking thing. A lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the big girlfriend in the refrigerator thing. You know, yes. with, yeah. And that's we can you can thank the Comics Code Authority and censorship for why that became a bigger deal because I don't know if you're aware of this. In the original way I drew it, you could see her the the, the refrigerator door wasn't attached to the wasn't attached to the fridge. You could see her intact. You know the 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 all the shells were broken and she was she was still dead, but you could see her. But you know I guess the you know there were sensors that thought we can't show that so you know, redraw a door so that, you know, it's, it's partially closed. And so when, as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't have the biggest refrigerator in the world. If, if there's a body in there, she's got to be in pieces. And that's what body thought. Oh my God, major force cut her up and put her in the fridge. And that's how it became such a controversy. If they left it the way I originally drew it, I don't think we'd be talking about it a year later, but because you couldn't see it, it made it more gruesome. Think about the movie Jaws. You know what a shark looks like, but it was that John Williams soundtrack. Da, da, da. It's that suspense is what you didn't see, and it starts messing with what your imagination kicks in, like a little kid that thinks there's a monster under his bed. You know, so to me, not showing Alex made it even worse. And in some ways, that's kind of good because I think it kind of kept Kyle on people's minds all these years later. And and you will forever, even long after you're gone, that trope of the girlfriend in the refrigerator is going to be one of your your legacies. And I mean, <laughs> and how does that make you feel? I mean, do you like ah, it's okay? I mean, do you like wow, that's kind of cool, even though it's kind of like dark in a way. I mean, that's one of the things that you know you guys are known for doing. And you know, how do you feel about your legacy? Like it's something like that. Well, hopefully, when people think of Kyle, they won't just think of that. But however, you know, we took no pleasure with 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 Alex dying. The whole thing is she was created to be Uncle Ben, like a, you know, like Peter Parker had his Uncle Ben. Yes. Well, we couldn't Kyle Rayner have an uncle die. That would just be like, oh, well, that's just Spider Man. So Ron was like, uh, his maybe a, a parent? No, it's still too close. A girlfriend. So that's really that's how it how that came to be. You know, he he needed a reason. He was given this ring randomly. You know, he was walk stepped outside of a of a nightclub he was at. And uh, the Guardian just gave him a ring and left. So why would this person just become a superhero? He needs a reason. So that that was it. The supervillain killed his girlfriend. And, you know, it was, I guess, kind of like vengeance at first. And he realized he's a part of something greater, you know, the legacy of the Green Lantern Corps. And then that's how, you know, it, it gave him more of a sense of purpose for what to do with this great power he was given. Hey, I didn't realize this, but you, like, did the art choice for, like, almost a hundred issues. That's like seven years. That's like an eternity in comic books nowadays. And I didn't realize that until I was going to like, because you know, it's decades of creators. And it's like, what, why did you stay fun for almost a hundred issues and all that time? I mean, you were just having that much fun. And. Well, no, I didn't do every issue because no, I no. had. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, Paul Pelletier did a lot and Jeff Johnson and others. I, I it was more like, it was the best gig I'd ever had, and I wasn't going to leave it voluntarily. You know, it would take something a lot bigger to come along to make me leave, and that that didn't happen. So I thought, uh, and also working with Ron, he was always, you know, interested in my input. So we were 
we had a great collaboration. You know, he 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 was the writer, but many times we'd actually talk on the phone or even in person from time to time about what we we're going to do. So I felt I wasn't just a guy handed a script. I had I had some say, and so with that, you know, with that participation, it really kept me interested all that time. You know, even after Ron left, I mean, now granted, I didn't have the same dynamic with with the subsequent writers, uh, but still. Uh, interested in the characters and the and the things that we were doing, yeah, that it was more like I, I still liked it. What, what, you know, it wasn't broke, so I didn't want to fix it. You know, so I had to leave. You know. Would you ever like to go back and, and revisit that character and those mythos again in something new, or you're like, I kind of over that. I don't really want to do that anymore. What's your That's thoughts? Still, uh, uh, back in 2020, uh, the Green Lantern anniversary special, Ron and I did an eight pager, okay. and uh, that was. Uh, that was, as a matter of fact, I think I have that. It had a lot of different covers. Here's the Jim Lee cover. Um, but, okay. uh, but uh, yeah, that was great because also that's the first time I had drawn Green Lantern professionally all digital because that's how I work on comics now. It's it's all digital. So I thought, you know, you know, can I do it? You know, there was a, a certain level of uh, stage fright in a way. I mean, I had been working digital, but not not on my not on my boy, not on Kyle. So I, I got to do this right. And Ron was the same way writing it. He, he took so long. It's eight pages. He goes, we haven't done this in a while. I, said, I you know, we, we want to come up with just the right thing. I said, yeah, I know. It's kind of like you figure that would be like, you know, a walk in the park. But it's kind of like because it's been so long and we don't want it to be stupid. And, and it has so many other talented artists and writers in the same book. So uh, we got it together. I, I, I'm pleased with how it came out. You know, that's funny because they think creators come together and they get this stuff together and you guys, I don't know, man, this is, this has been a long time. We haven't been on this horse in a while. And people, <laughs> people don't like realize it, realize that, you know, it, you guys are just human beings. So when you decided to go into a digital creation mode, was that an easy jump for you? You know, from just strictly punks, now you're starting to do stuff digital. Was that a, a steep learning curve? You just jumped into it. Oh, it was a learning curve. It was a learning curve because I felt like, I noticed, just like with anything, you've got to, I mean, you, I'm sure you've experienced this, even, no matter what you're doing, you can't just keep doing the same thing without a sense of adding to your skill set, adding to your arsenal. You, you, that's just how the world works. You, you've got to be able to be able to do other things or, or risk becoming obsolete. You know? So I, I saw that this, you know, doing work digitally was really becoming more and more prevalent. I thought, Okay. I mean, I even got a computer very late in life. I was, I used to teach at the same school I graduated from. And I remember sending my students on like on a break and I would overhear them talking about working on a computer. I hadn't, I didn't own one at the time. And they would mention taking something into Photoshop. And I had no idea specifically what that meant. I remember taking a student aside and goes, what does take it into Photoshop mean? And bless his heart, he explained it word for word. He might as well have said it in Greek because I didn't understand a word of it. I'm thinking, I got to get a computer. I got to learn this. And it was it was so frightening to me until because I thought it would just be so difficult. It, even just surfing the web, I would go to the library and see little kids doing that. I'm thinking, oh, they probably teach them that in school. You know, get on this internet thing. And I, once I did, I'm like, this was what I thought was difficult. <laughs> so um, now it's just it, it's it's my preferred way to work. I mean, I still, like I said, I still do traditional work when it comes to my commissions or when I'm at conventions doing sketches, that sort of thing. But as far as, you know, my, my, my commercial work or with comics, yeah, it's, it's all digital. And, uh, 
it's a it's it's a lot of fun. To, the, the, it's a learning curve, but it's a, an enjoyable learning curve because you see the possibilities, and there are things that you can do to make it look like traditional pencils and ink. That's that's one uh, a goal of mine is to always make sure that it, it still feels like the Daryl Banks style artwork that they're become accustomed to. As you're getting older, are you starting to like? look at Daryl Banks, the legacy that you have only X number of years that you could possibly maybe be creative and how you want to like end those type of years. Do you have like an end point of what you might want to do? Or like, I don't want to talk about that right now. That's too far off for me. Um, I really, I mean, I don't consider I'm older than I'm, I'm older than a lot of comic creators. I think in, in, in many cases, but I don't consider myself old. I don't know. Um, fortunately, I have a lot of older relatives that are still with me. So I'm thinking, you know, uh, to me, old is almost a state of mind in many in many cases. You know, that older you're, you're, you're as young as you feel type of thing. But uh, as far as when do I see myself not drawing, I, I don't imagine there will ever be a time. I, I think about the late, great Joe Sinnott. You know, he drew to the very end. You know, he, he never stopped. I, and the, here's the thing: I was at a show with him once, and he was, you know, doing some headshots, and his work was as good as it was, you know, as it was in the '60s or '70s. He had not lost a step, and I just remember just looking at, just staring at him, like, I want to be like that, you know. I mean, I, it was it was one of those things where you imagine, well, you figure his his hand would get shaky or something like that. Well, I'm sure that that has happened to some people, but not to him, you know. Um, so I don't really have a you know, I plan on stopping drawing because it's not just a job. I mean, obviously, I, I won't be doing it professionally, you know, to the, to the very end. But I don't picture a time where I don't want to draw anymore, you know, out of out of desire. You know, if I couldn't, that's one thing. But not wanting to, no. It's just more like how I see the world, you know, capture it on from three dimensions to, to two dimensions. Yeah. Do you remember the first comic convention you went as a creator? And do you remember the first comic convention and you realized that, hey, I'm actually like in the big leagues now. I'm somebody. <laughs> My first convention, you know, I, I, when you give me the notes, I, I thought, I actually, don't know. I, there was a show, I remember um, amongst my first convention, it, a show in Kentucky. And that was when I was still, yeah, I had just done Cyberpunk and I was still with Innovation. I would say that's, I don't even remember the name of the show, but I, it was it was a small show in, in the state of Kentucky. That was that would have been my first. As far as I've made it into the into the big time, I don't know. I, I to me, what is big time? You know, it's kind of like I, I think because of the the artists that I've I've admired all my life. To me, that's big time, and I don't see myself like them. You know, like growing up thinking about uh, a John Buscema, you know, John Byrne. Uh, you know, for Zeta, that's big time. You know, to, to me, this is just what I do. You know, if, if someone considers that big time, that's great. I appreciate it. But I think about, you know, um, uh, I, I was talking with Walt Simonson at uh, at a convention last year. And I've done lots of shows with him, but I've never talked with him before. And he's someone whose work I've loved since childhood. But I, I get starstruck really easy. So uh, I, I finally... Uh, uh, you know, took a selfie with him and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, I, you know, my wife and I are just two of the most boring people you ever want to meet. Like, you know, I was starstruck. He was like saying, there, if you knew how boring we, we were, you wouldn't feel this way. And I'm thinking, 
I disagree. You're 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 far from boring because you're Walt Simonson. You know, it's kind of like so. But then I I understand what he what he means, but that's just him being humble, uh, you know, and not walking around like he's a rock star. Because unfortunately, I have seen artists who had that attitude. That just that's not for me. You know, I you know to me, uh, you know, I just think about I'm fortunate enough to do this, and I and I, I enjoy what I do, and. And that's it. <laughs> so, so I was potentially seeing change over the years because I think it, before it used to be much more personal, more or now it's like more commercial. Has the convention stuff changed for you over the years? Has it gotten better, or you miss certain aspects? It's, 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 it's better now, but it's it's bigger and it's a lot more accepted. You know, I mean, you'll have, I mean, when I first started convention, you, you know, you didn't have all these uh, movie stars and TV stars and that sort of thing. Um, and also the fans are much more diverse now just because creators are. It's more like I, I, I submit that, that there's nothing more diverse than a comic book convention crowd. I mean, you might get it in an NFL game or a baseball game, but at a comic convention, it's every single walk of life. There's a representation of every type of person that there is. And I can't think of anything else that can draw a crowd like that like a comic convention. And um, I think that's great uh, because the more, you know, we see uh, each other, we realize, you know, we might be different, have different races, religions, whatever, but we all like these crazy comics and we've got that in common. Maybe the, it's like world peace through comics. <laughs> but uh, that's one thing I really feel like nowadays it has changed a lot from when I first started doing conventions. Are you like surprised that when you go to convention that people are like still so into you and what you did, or you're like, man, I expect crickets. Ain't nobody gonna be in line for me. How does that feel for you? You know, going to a convention. I, I remember what it was like going to conventions before I was published or anything. I just I would go just as a fan, and so when I talk with people and when they when they refer to me like I refer to the comic pros when i was just a fan it just feels weird being on the other side of the table literally i mean but i'm also still a fan i remember i did a show with uh, uh it was in a motor city comic con and, and uh, garcia lopez was there and he had gotten up probably just to stretch his legs or whatever and he had a line of people wanting to take selfies or whatever i was in the same line it was kind of like we're, we're all fans of, of great kind of like i'm a pro and i'm a fan i'm both you know um but i remember you know, when whenever someone talks about the artist on Greenlander, they'll mention Bill Kane and and Neil Adams and uh, Joe Staten, and then me. It's just funny, like the whenever they mention a list of, of Greenlander artists, my name comes up. I feel like, wow, that's like I ne I never would have thought that people would lump me in that same category, and it's it's just an honor that never gets old. You know, uh, I have to accept the fact that I'm you know uh, my first uh, work on Green Lantern that was a long time ago that was decades ago even though I have vivid memories of day one I mean I remember even getting the uh, the phone call to even work on it because um, my first work with DC was the Legion of Superhero and I just would always drop hints that it sure would be great to do Green Lantern because I had ideas but I, I never thought that they would actually give me a chance on it. I just it was just something I mentioned because I really had some strong ideas and it's kind of like word got out got back to them and they're like oh he does does he hmm. well let's see how he does on this book over here and we'll, and we'll take it from there so you also taught in the past you taught at your uh when you went to college columbus college art and design 
And do you still teach courses there or would you something like to do again? And why did you decide to teach at the time? I I taught for a while. It was it, it started with I had when I was when I was a student there, comics weren't very respected at all. You know, and I can't really 100 percent say it's, it is to this day. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But um, I had an instructor that was always supportive of me wanting to to get into comics. And so um, his name was Ron Tardino. And he would have me come in and speak to his class on different things and not necessarily just about comics, but just as, as a graduate who was doing art professionally. And uh, one day uh, he had me come in uh, and teach a, just like a techniques two week type of thing. And it sort of spiraled into, Hey, do you want to do some more things? And it's more like I could fit it in my schedule at the time. I was still single. So, you know, um, I did some illustration classes and then he said, all right, I got an idea. How about a comic book class? And then I thought he was just kidding because I'm like, at CCAD, they don't even like comics. Said, no, I, I think I think you can do it. I'm like, well, how would you do a comic class? He said, well, what do they need to know? I said, a lot of things. Write up and I'll present it to the board of whatever and and I'll let you know what happens. And they they okayed it and I did it for five years. So, um, but it's not something I think I would do again. I mean, like I said, when I stopped teaching, it was I had I was recently married. I was doing lots of comic work. I thought something's got to go. My wife, my teaching, the comics. It ain't going to be the comics. It ain't going to be my wife. See it. So <laughs> that's what happened. So do you like see yourself as trying to be a mentor for, especially for young black creators that are coming up into the industry? Do you like take a little special notice when you see people like that or not? Or how do you, I mean, you try to give the same advice to not just black, but all creators that you felt you got as a up and coming artist. I, I, I find myself having people uh, ask me questions, whether it's either on social media or in person, you know, young, old, black, white, you name it. And I, I used to have a, a certain set of things, a bit of advice of different things that they needed to work on. And I got to thinking about it. Let's say, for example, like, oh, you need to work from life more or you need to learn to draw cards. I, I, I kind of stopped doing that. I thought, you know, they can get that from a YouTube channel. I said, what what are some of the things that I really wish I had understood when I was trying to do this going from amateur professional? And the number one thing was learn to relax. I realized how stressed out I was. I was a perpetual state of stress, being stressed out about trying to draw you can't draw that well when you're when you're stressed out. And really, what can you do when you're stressed out? I, my biggest thing is I tell people, like I just did a podcast about a week ago. They said, what advice would you give? I said, relax. It's like, remember, you know, art is fun. You you decided to do this because you enjoyed it. It's like when you relax, you'll realize, hey, you know, I can, you know, even with a deadline, I can still enjoy this. Now, that sounds overly simplified, but I realized it took me years to really grasp, like, that's what makes that's what makes this much more worthwhile fulfilling and it, it's 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 something that your work is never going to be perfect but when you can relax and just not take it so seriously that you can't enjoy anything and so that's what my my advice has been has evolved into like i said no matter who i'm talking with um i like the fact that being a black creator seeing someone that, that and i i will get this to this day I'm like you mean the guy that did the famous green lantern cover you know with all the rings that's a black artist. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Wow, didn't I last, know that? Last, last time I checked, yeah, he was a black artist. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's it's a thing where my 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 goal is just like I had 
the Dennis Cowens and the Brian Stelfries, I want to be that to, to someone else to, to go like, huh, there's someone that looks like me that does this. Well, now I feel a little bit more encouraged. You know, that, that's that's something I want. I want people to, to feel like they can reach their goal, because I, I feel like when you have a goal in life and you've, you've experienced this, I'm sure when you have a point to your life, it makes it more fulfilling. You, when you it'll, it's a reason to get out of bed. It's like the why, you know. So being, you know, being an artist is part of your why. This is this is what I do. This is this is what I enjoy. So you also do some inking. Recently, I saw you did some work for the Nubia Comics at DC. Have you always been inkers? Something that you recently really gotten into? Do you like to ink your own work? What's it like for you as an inker? Oh well, it was. If you look, it's it's pencil and inker. It's like they they for some reason they had it two different things. I I didn't ink someone else. It was it was still me. That was all digital. Okay. But, um, I think maybe because the way the uh, I don't know, the pay structure, or whatever, uh, they have to list it as pencil and ink. Because I mean, really, in some ways, that is even though it's digital, I do have to kind of rough digitally draw it first, and then and then ink over it. So it's kind of like it's still pencil and ink and that sort of thing. But you know, once again, it took a while to to get confidence to do that because the first time I started doing comics digitally it was with a graphic novel that i worked on with ron mars it's called harkins raiders okay uh, it's a world war ii graphic novel actually when i started it it was only partially digital it was still using traditional for like figures and that sort of thing because i didn't have a graphics tablet uh like i have now this uh, uh it's called a cintiq um so i just used a, a mouse in the old days what well, well old days when i Excuse me. When I was working on Harkins Raiders, so uh, as I got upgraded equipment, I can do it, you know, uh, completely digital. And so by the time I was doing uh, the uh, digital work for DC, it was 100% digital, and I felt a little bit more confident doing it. So Harkins Raiders, um, that wasn't done in a digital edition. How do you feel about digital comic books as a creator? Is it overall? Do you think it it's okay? Does it? like water down your art or changes anything. Do you have any preference about that? I feel in many ways, I, I like my digital art better than my traditional work because there are tones and effects that I can put into my work that it would either take me too long to do it traditionally or uh, they're, you know, they're, they're getting the results that I'm happy with is a lot quicker when I do it digitally. And having digital comics for people to buy, I think is great. I mean, I have the Marvel Unlimited uh, subscription where I can go back and read comics, you know, some, you know, old and new. I, I tend to focus on the older stuff. But um, I think it's, you know, there was a time where people thought, oh, once comics go digital, you know, print comics will go away. I've been hearing about the, the, the destruction of the comic industry since before I got into it in 1989. Hey, well, I, 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 started, go I started collecting comic books in 77. And since I was a boy, I've always heard about comic books are going to end. It got to end, and they're they're not going to end. We're not. It's not going to happen. But speaking of Marvel Unlimited, they have these uh, special comic books, and it's like webtoons. And the best way to describe it is when you read it, it's like a roll of toilet paper. You just scroll down. You see oh, really? it. Yeah. Would you, as an artist, have any interest in doing that? Like uh, the webtoons or the Marvel Infinity, where basically the art doesn't go from right to left; it just scrolls down like a roll of toilet paper. Would you have any interest in doing something like that? I'd have to take a look at it. You know, I mean, there are times where uh, doing things that are different for me, like it's it can be difficult, but it's a good challenge. Like Harkins Raiders, we were just talking about. That's a period piece. I had to reference 
everything. I could draw nothing out of my head. I mean, I don't know what a what a uh, the Allied aircraft looks like and and you know German fighter planes that sort of thing. So that was difficult. But then once it was done, it was satisfying because it reminds me of some of the things I told my students is that you're going to find yourself uh, still learning in one way, shape, or form even when you've been doing this professionally for a number of years. Uh, what what you mentioned with that different format, it would just be another skill set I'd have to learn because I currently I'm not familiar with it but it could be interesting it could be I have to take so you and Ron Myers did that a couple years ago was that like the two of you just getting back on a bicycle I mean you just sink back up after all those years was it easy as far as the two of us working together we in some ways we never stopped I mean even before Harkins Raiders we've done some work together for another independent publisher called uh, Van Breed Studio. So, yeah, we stay in contact, you know, um, even with uh, with Ryder. You know, it's just more like, you know, we I'd like to think of us as friends and, you know, and uh, comic professionals. So uh, also we had done a, a Green Lantern special back in 2011, I believe. Um, there was a time where DC was doing these what they call the retroactive series. Like, let's say uh, Superman 80s. 90s or 70s 80s 90s something like that same with green lantern so obviously green lantern 90s and at the time i was super busy but i thought i can't not do this so um you know uh, we we did you know we did a story in that as well so um we as 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 uh, the, the old expression goes we put the band together here and there you know so with uh what's different of what we did in 2020 is it was all digital so it was different for me artistically and it was more like, you know, I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm up to this. I can do this. And also, uh, hopefully, DC will like my digital work and will want other things, which which they did. Do you have any interest in being a writer? Ooh, there are times I, I'm this close thinking, oh, you know, I, I'd i like to learn it. But then I think if I felt better about uh my goals artistically i'd branch into that um i even you know i have friends that are writers they they, they would they would tell me anything i'd need to know what to work on but i have no confidence about writing my own scripts just yet so uh, but you know stay tuned yeah I, I i don't see that as an impossibility at all so staying tuned what do you have planned for 2023 you got anything coming out this year that you can actually talk about a little bit oh. Yeah, well, hopefully the yeah, the horror show uh, graphic novel that I'm doing with Michael Katz, that'll be done this year. Um, I've got upcoming for DC, I, I did a short story with the All-Star Squadron uh, that focused on Amazing Man. All-Star and, Squadron? Yes. Wow. When's, uh, that, when's that coming out? I'm actually not sure, but uh, if, if they're in it, but it focuses on Amazing Man. That's a, no, uh, yeah. Because I have not heard, I have not heard All Star Squadron and Amazing Man out of DC in like almost decades. When you said All Star Squadron, it's like that was like um, almost like DC's dirty little, you know, we don't talk about that part of our, you know, <laughs> anymore. And you said Amazing Man because All Star Squadron was a, a, an incredible run back in the Bronze Age. So you got that come out. That's very cool. What What else do you have? Anything else exciting that you can talk about yet? I'm st- still working with Hawthorne. Like like I said, I've got some I've got some assignments to do today. Um, and hopefully, you know, I remember when I did the work with with Nubia and I did a Joker cover for DC and a few other things. And 
I think someone in the editorial department, or I think maybe that handles invoice, say, oh, welcome back to DC. And I'm thinking, oh, it was just here and there, but I'm like, are they going to keep giving me more work? I mean, I certainly hope so. And so far they have. So, um, you know, nothing uh, on a regular basis. I, I don't see myself doing monthly comments again. That's, oh, that was so much work. <laughs> um, but if they, you know, keep going the way they have been, I would be fine with that. You know, uh, I've been fortunate to work with great editors and writers and, and, and oh, I, I got to give credit to the colorists I've worked with. I mean, on really everything I've worked on, but with DC, the the the, the uh, colorist, it's a studio called Hi-Fi, and uh, I'm always uh, loving everything they do. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much 23 thus far. Um, I'll, of course, I'd still do more conventions. I've got one coming up in February, towards the end of February in Michigan, Warren, Michigan. It's called the Great Lakes Comic Con. Okay. Before we wrap this up, you get the last word. Any parting thoughts today? Oh, once again, I, I, I want to say thanks for having me. I definitely, you know, I don't take it for granted, even though I do podcasts here and there, but I, I never take it for granted like someone's supposed to interview me or stuff like that. I have no rock star status in my head, you know, so <laughs> thanks for having me. And I hope that, you know, I was able to say something that was informational and entertaining and, uh, if anyone wants to see any more of my work, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And I'll have a, uh, a link in the show notes to your accounts also. Daryl Banks, iconic rock star creator. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. And we'll figure out how to get you back on the show sometime in the future. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you, fantastic comic fan, at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.